Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with writer Aria Salafranca. Aria has published three collections of poetry, A Life Stripped of Illusions in 1995, which received the Sunlam Award for Poetry, The Fire in Which We Burn in 2000, and Beyond Touch in 2015, which was a co-winner of the Sala Awards. Her fiction has been published online, in anthologies and journals, and is collected in her debut collection, The Thin Line, in 2010, which was long listed for the Wallace Yonke Award in 2012. She's participated in a number of writers' conferences, edited two anthologies, and has received awards for her poetry and fiction. Aria's next book is a collection of creative non-fiction essays, travel writing, personal essays, and journal entries, which will be published by Mojaji Books in 2021. She lives in Johannesburg. Aya's piece in Living Well Feminist is called Raffia, and it takes the form of a series of diary entries at the point where Aria embarks on her first lesbian relationship at 40 years old. In that piece, she says, Sometimes what is not said doesn't exist. So today I'm going to be speaking with her about writing things into existence and the writing life. Welcome, Aria. Thank you, Jane. So your piece begins with the word revolutions. Why that word? It was a revolution because for years and years I'd had this niggle in my mind that perhaps I was gay, that I wasn't straight, even though at that point I was living the straight life, so to speak. I'd been with men, I'd lived with a man, I'd only had relationships with men. But since my late teens, early 20s, there was this thing which I... I couldn't define it. I could only say to some people, maybe I was gay, maybe I was bisexual, but I didn't have the courage to to look further into it, to explore it. So it was a revolution to experience it, to let myself experience it, to actually go for what was me in the end. Um, I wasn't straight. I'm not straight, but I didn't have the courage to do that. So it was a it was a huge revolution in terms of in fact, falling in love for the first time, because even though I had loved men, it wasn't the same as loving a woman. So it was like beginning again um, at the age of 40. So in all senses, it was a new beginning. It was a revolution. It was my whole life turning upside down. And why did you decide to write about this moment of revolution of love for a feminist collection? Because I think discovering who we are is part of feminism. It's part of being a woman. Because we're so often told by society, by family, by by all sorts of outside influences who we are. And that was my problem too, that I was told by society um, in South Africa in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was in my teens and then my early 20s. um, Lesbianism, being gay, being bisexual, all those things wasn't yet accepted, wasn't yet, well, I can't say it's mainstream now, but it certainly wasn't in the media. Um, I remember um, about 1991, there was an episode of LA Law, and there was a lesbian kiss on it, and it was the talk of the Sunday newspapers. Um, and it was it was something that was just so hidden. And, and so writing about it, I wanted to 
I wanted to bring this out into the open. Um, I decided to write about that moment, that relationship, because I wanted to bring the love that I had for my, my ex-partner into the open. I wanted to bring a lesbian relationship into the open, because even though it's far more out and about in society now, I mean, you can read far more lesbian books than you could in the past, and you can find more information, it is still something that's not really in your face. It's still something that, in some ways, sometimes feels a little bit revolutionary. Um, so I wanted to explore and describe the love that I felt. And in a sense, it's it's a love. It's, it doesn't have to be gay or straight or lesbian or anything else. It's love. I wanted to I wanted to show the love that is possible between two people, and to explore the depths of feelings and the highs of of being in love, of discovering who you are. And living well, feminist includes different types of writing. It's got essays, poems, life writing, and your piece, which took the form of a diary entry. And for me, as a reader, this choice of form allowed a sense of intimacy. It felt like I was going on the journey with you as you discovered this new budding part of yourself and this new budding relationship. Why did you choose the form of a journal entry rather than an essay, say, a reflective essay? And what were the limits and the potential of the diary form? I chose the diary form because that was how I originally wrote the pieces. Um, and, and yes, I could have gone ahead and taken the pieces and written an essay about it. Because what I did in, in another sec, well, what I've done in another essay or another piece of mine is I've actually written about the end of the relationship. Not, not so much the end, but the aftermath of when a relationship ends. And I wrote that as an essay. I didn't write it as a diary. But I, I think the diary offers an immediacy and a rawness that an essay perhaps doesn't always. And I felt by looking back at my diary entries that there was a rawness, there was an immediacy that was echoed through them. There wasn't, I wasn't editing the experience as you do when you write an essay or, or any other long piece. That's just naturally what you do. It was writing in the moment and I wanted to capture that writing in the moment. Um, I, I, I'm still playing around with the idea of perhaps writing a longer piece about the relationship, not the ending of it, but about the three and a half year relationship that I had with my ex-partner and exploring far more of it because the piece, the diary piece only explores the beginning, the euphoria, the love, the discovering myself. But what I also want to write about is the ups and downs and lows of a relationship and how it deepens and how you discover so much more about yourself as well as the other person and that for that I might do by writing an essay. I, d I have kept diaries since the age of 11, so obviously I've got diary entries relating to the whole relationship. So I will look at those diary entries and I'll no doubt plumb some of them and perhaps use some of them and edit some of them, but they won't be perhaps diary a diary piece. Um, but I, I really, I also like reading other people's diaries. And so my feeling was also if I like reading other people's diaries and other people's diaries are published, perhaps people would also enjoy reading my diary entries and, and going along with me in the immediate present, which is how I think the diary entries read. They definitely do. You do feel like we're going along with you and wondering what's going to happen. And I think it is a, 
I mean, the choice of form is important in terms of what you say, being able to unpack, you know, editing your experience. I was very interested in your piece that you say at the time that you started this really revolutionary, transformative relationship that you stopped going to therapy, partly because the medical aid ran out and partly because you felt like to talk about this too soon would be to expose something new to scrutiny, which also spoke to me on the level of a writer as in when you're writing something and you're working on something very new and exciting, you, you do want to show it to someone, but showing it to the wrong person or exposing it to too much scrutiny makes the whole thing feel exposed and infiltrated. Tell me about that choice to preserve this moment for yourself and what do you think the reasons were for wanting to stop that therapeutic process? I think just as exactly you've said, it was exposing something to the raw reality of of the light, so to speak. And although the therapist helped me with certain points of the relationship as we were beginning, I, you know, the relationship did end. And I can't say that there were red flags or red... There were a couple of red flags in the beginning, even though it was a beautiful relationship and it has been a transformative experience. But I didn't want to explore those red flags. I didn't I didn't want to know that there could be anything wrong with this relationship. And I think unconsciously I realized that and that's why I stopped therapy. I just knew that my therapist might force me to confront these things and that the relationship would perhaps not have the the length that it that it did. Um but looking back in hindsight it would have been good to have continued with therapy. I mean, whether or not the medical aid ran out or, or whatever, that was that was one point of it. Perhaps I could have gone less often and saved money that way, however. Um, but I, I didn't want to know. I didn't want to know anymore. I just wanted to go along with the relationship. And in the end, I learned so much more about the relationship once it had ended. And then I went for therapy again with, with somebody else. And it... It showed me, uh, I just, that was another revolution because I realized how much I had suppressed within that relationship, despite it being wonderful. It's a, I also learned that things aren't black and white, they are gray. That relationship was wonderful, the person I was with was wonderful. But there were things that were wrong. And, they, and if I'd had, if I'd met that person perhaps later on in life when I'd had another relationship with a woman, when I'd learned so much more about myself through a relationship, perhaps this relationship wouldn't have continued, or perhaps it would have continued along a different line. And because of that, we might or might not still be together, but we might have been because I had learned so much. So yeah, stopping therapy was was good and bad. It let me just flow into the moment, but it didn't let me see the all the sides of the wheel, so to speak. I'm interested as well in that this this moment, like you say, was a revolution and it did happen in your 40s. And I wonder if there was something that made you feel ready to to try to explore that side of yourself at that point that hadn't been there before and, and what that was. Well, it was a combination in my late 30s of, well, I, I, met, I met a friend, I, I've made friends with somebody. And what I felt for this friend was not exactly friendship but yet it wasn't it wasn't more than that but it wasn't friendship it was it was more than friendship yet it wasn't a a love thing it was very hard for me to describe 
And previously to that, I had met some a woman, etc., who was straight. And I'd felt a pulse of sexual desire for her, but I mean, that was totally impossible. So these two changes, meeting this friend and knowing that I somehow wanted more from this friend, and that when I met this friend for coffee or supper or plays or movies or whatever, I was excited in a way that you, you, you're happy to meet your friends, but you're not excited as you are when you're starting embarking on meeting somebody that you, you might have a relationship with in the future. So there were these two things, and that's when I really thought, you know what, there's more to this, there's, there's something there. You've felt sexual desire for a woman, you've, or you've allowed yourself to feel sexual desire for a woman, because I'd never let myself feel that before. I'd always said, okay, I'm not gay because I don't feel sexual desire for women. But that was because I think I was suppressing it, because it somehow wasn't allowed. Because it had been such a deep, dark thing in the 80s and the 90s when it wasn't out there and South Africa didn't have gay rights and it was so much easier to be straight. Easier in inverted commas. So these two experiences really propelled me and that's when I thought, okay, uh, there's something. But I wasn't yet quite ready. I went on a dating site when I was, I think, about 38, near 39. But I created such a profile that nobody would have been interested I said, I like to write, I like to be alone, keep your distance, all those things, which of course you don't put on a dating website when you want to be with somebody and nobody contacted me. And I was so happy that nobody contacted me, but I was doing something because there I was on a dating website. And then after about a year of that, um, I came to my senses or I was more brave and I put down, took down that terrible profile and put up something that was more friendly and then women started contacting me, but I did not contact anybody. I, I just could not. There was still that fear that um, if, it, if it was going to happen, it had to happen sort of a bit, not submissively, but passively. Somebody else had to contact me. It's so interesting, the, the little traps that we set for ourselves. I mean, I'm smiling listening to you because you, you can hear the way that we... We know that we're ready for something, but we want to make sure that we protect ourselves. So we make it, you know, we put ourselves out there, but not enough that anyone would contact us back. Like, I think it's definitely something that so many listeners are going to relate to and be smiling at themselves while hearing you speak now. I loved also that you spoke about this relationship and as your relationship progresses in your diary entries, you sort of lose your grasp on language in a way and words feel so insufficient. And you call this experience of falling in love for the first time horrible and wondrous. And I'd like you to tell me a bit more about those two oppositional elements and why horrible and why wondrous. Okay, um, horrible because I, I lost my words. I also couldn't read, and I've, I'm a, I mean, I'm a writer, so I read, and I've been a lifelong reader, well, I mean, since the time I could start reading. There's never been a time in my life that I couldn't read, but I found I was reading one book every two, three, four months. I just could not keep concentration. I was flying, and so that was horrible because I was, in a way, lost. I was lost in this relationship. I was completely subsumed in thoughts, in, in wondering about where it was going to be, in, in just, this, I, was, I was in the clouds, and I'd never been in the clouds quite in this way before. So that was almost horrible, 
I wasn't losing myself, but I was certainly not where I had always been. I didn't have quite the same containment on my feelings as before. And and losing your containment on your feelings is also was what's quite scary for me because I'm used to I'm used to being able to do things. I'm used to knowing that if I need to sit down and read a book I can do that. Or if I need to write something I can write it with ease. I'm not constantly daydreaming and thinking and just lost. So in that sense it was horrible. Also what I found quite difficult was that you you are so lost in the relationship in terms of time. I was somebody who is and has been used to being on my own when I needed to be on my own and and being a writer you do need to be on your own. You can't be with people 24-7. Yet when I wasn't with my partner, she lived in Pretoria, I lived in Johannesburg, so we we did have, let's call it a a long-distance relationship because you couldn't see each other always in the week. It was a bit of a difficulty and traffic and all those sorts of things. So I wasn't with her all the time, so I had alone time, but yet I couldn't use that alone time. I, I wasn't myself, and that was frightening. Yet, as at the same time, of course, it was wondrous. I mean, it's wonderful falling in love with somebody. It's wonderful getting to know yourself in a new, different way. A relationship is like a mirror for me, so you, you see yourself reflected by the other person. And at the same time, you learn so much about the other person in a way that you don't learn necessarily, let's say, through a friendship or even with family, because in a sense, older members of family have always been there. So you it's a familiarity. So it was wondrous in that sense that I was also finding myself in love, as I said earlier, for the first time and seeing what that was all about. And also seeing that love isn't something that arrives and that's it. It deepens, it changes. And as it deepens and changes, you deepen and change. You learn about the other person's family. You learn about the other person's culture because uh, my relationship was with a woman who had grown up in a Muslim household. um, And that is obviously not my background. So I learned all about the restrictions that had been placed on her and how she'd broken free of those restrictions and the strength in her because of that. So it was discovering her family as well, discovering a whole other world. I'd had Muslim friends at uh, university, but that was that was friendship, that was different. I had learned about their culture and the differences and what they had faced and the difficulties they had also faced. But this was different. This was me being in those difficulties as well. Because I, she wasn't out to her whole family, she was only out to, to one or two people in her family. So when I met some of her family members, we couldn't say, oh, this is my partner, um, I was there as a friend. So that was also, that was difficult for me too, because you want to shout it from the rooftop, but you couldn't entirely. But to her intimate family, most of them, most of the intimate family, a few of them, she was out. So then that was where we could be together in that space. So it was... It was black, it was white, it was and it was all the colours of the rainbow, but cliched, but, the, but that's the way it was. In a words, it's what happens when you're in love, your words just go, I feel the same thing. So, <laughs> um, so one of the things I'm interested in is writing is always a process, especially um, life writing or journal writing is a process of reflecting on the present and also on the past. And so this relationship happened in your 40s and I wonder if it changed your feelings about things that had happened before or forced you to 
change the way you thought about a future for yourself? It did. It did change. Um, I'd, I'd always thought that I might have a husband one day. And I must say, I like the word husband. I think it's a much nicer word than wife, and I can't tell you why that is. I just like the sounds of it. So in my mind, I thought, okay, I'll have a husband, and he will obviously be a man. And, I mean, there's still a part of me that does like the masculinity of men. That, that doesn't go. Otherwise, I obviously wouldn't have been able to have relationships with men. But suddenly I realized that my future might contain a woman for, until the end of my life or so. And that was also wonderful. That was, that, but that was a change. I no longer saw myself with a man. I no longer saw myself as living as part of a more conventional kind of relationship. And a relationship that is still more accepted by society than two women. And also, I mean, two women can easily, if you find yourself in a, a dangerous spot, you can pretend that you're two friends. So that is that's very, very different. That there is when you're with a woman, there is always that escape clause, I suppose. But it also made me aware that living with a woman for the rest of my life, if if that was how it was going to be, would also be different. There would always be this slight, not so slight, this awareness that you're living with a woman and that you might be in danger at any point. And my partner had um, been in Pretoria for very many years and had experienced this, um, oh, I don't know, this homophobia where she had been with previous partners and she had experienced it just walking the streets of Pretoria. So she was very, very concerned about that or very aware of that, whereas I was not aware of that at all. But I'm now also aware that there might be some countries in the world where if I was with a partner, we would have to hide that if we really wanted to go to that country which I find very, very sad, and that changes my view. If I was going there with a husband or a boyfriend or, or something of that sort, there would be no hiding. You wouldn't have to pretend to be something other than you are. And I'm talking about countries that, that are homophobic or that don't welcome two women. I mean, Russia's got famous homophobia laws and Saudi Arabia and, and, many, and other countries. I can't remember which other ones. So it has changed my, my definition of the future. And I know that if I do have another partner, that she will be a woman and that there will be, there will obviously be some hurdles to leap over. I also remember once that I was at work and this is when my relationship had ended and work had also changed. So, I mean, it was a whole upside down thing and I had a new boss um, and this new boss had known me for many, many years since my 20s when I'd previously worked at that company and she knew me when I was straight. And one day in the newsroom, after we had just had a meeting, she said, oh, no man is ever worth it. Don't be sad, or whatever she might have said, words to that effect. And this was in the newsroom, and this was after a meeting, and this was with a boss who was not particularly wonderful, so I was hardly about to reveal much, although my sadness was quite evident. But there I, I didn't say anything like, oh, well, it's actually a woman. Um, I'm not feeling this over a man, because it felt so redundant to say this. And at the end of the meeting, but I felt, oops, there was something that I hadn't said. I felt bad about not saying it. I felt bad about the fact that she still thought I was with a man, yet it didn't matter. She she mattered so little in my life that it didn't matter whether she thought I was with a man or a woman or in a polyamorous relationship or whatever. It was none of her business. But I felt then, okay, in the future, you're always going to be coming out in a sense. 
unless you immediately, I mean, you can't immediately meet somebody new and say, oh, hi, I'm a lesbian. I mean, if you're meeting somebody as a friend, for goodness sake, that's a bit ridiculous. So in a sense, and also I am very feminine. I am not butch or any of those kinds of things. So people meeting me automatically assume I'm not gay. And so I, again, I always have to, I do bring it up in friendships as it comes up, new friendships that is, as it comes up and people then are made aware of it, but there's always a, a coming out kind of moment, which does change things. Um, I never had that before. I was part of the, let's call it the mainstream and people would then know what to expect from me. And, and so it went on, um, which is very different now, you know, so that, that changes it. And, and of course, two women in the future traveling, finding a house together, doing all those kinds of things. People assume you're friends sometimes, and I wouldn't want that, them to assume that I'm friends with my partner. And then there's also the question of, do you hold hands in public or not? Where are you in public? And I think younger women have an easier time with that because they didn't grow up living in the kind of repressive society that I grew up in in the 80s and early 90s. So they would be more accepting of it. It's also more in the mainstream media. You have TV shows about people who are not straight. It's out there, whereas it wasn't before. So that, that homophobia was also a little bit internalized in those of us who are older now. Um, so yes, yeah, so the future will be different to what I imagined when I was still being straight in my 20s and 30s and, and thinking that, yes, I would one day have that creature called a husband. I have that creature called a husband. <laughs> I mean, okay. I still find marriage, marriage a very strange institution, but... I know what you mean about how it's built up in our culture as a thing to get one day and to, to settle down, I suppose, is the idea that most people will relate to. Mm. So you've you've lived a life that has been through many different changes and, and one of the things that you've been doing for a large part of that life is writing. You've written poems, essays and short stories. What is your favourite type of writing and do you have a set writing routine or are you a bit more flexible? Okay, my favorite writing, I can't say any one of them is my favorite writing. I think what I can say is that I write according to what comes. So in other words, sometimes an image will come or an idea will come and I know that's a poem. And then that has to be a poem and that's fantastic and I love living that poem as I'm writing. Sometimes I know it's not a poem, it's a short story. And then I write it as a short story. And again, I enjoy writing it as a short story. About 10 years ago, I started doing my MA in creative writing and I chose to do novellas. And I chose that because I wanted room to breathe. I had been playing with the idea of writing a novel, but I hadn't been able to kind of get to that. So novellas allowed me to go beyond the short story and to write almost a short novel. It was 40,000 words, not quite a short novel of about 50, 60,000 words. And I loved doing that. I loved the breathing of it. I loved not having a limit because with a short story, there is a limit, whatever that limit might be, whether it's five or eight or at most 10,000 words. So I really loved doing that when I was doing it. But at the same time, I also loved travel writing and travel, reading travel writing and doing my own travel writing. And I did a lot of that when I was at the Sunday Independent as the feature, the lifestyle and features editor and an arts editor. It was a whole mix of 
editing. And I love that. I love going to foreign places, whether it's in your own city or your own country or overseas, and putting that experience into, into writing and photography. So all of these things are my favorite kinds of writing. There isn't really one or the other. And this year I had an idea for a novel. I've had other ideas for novels, but they didn't quite work out or I couldn't quite follow them through. This idea for a novel, I've incorporated elements of it that I had when I was 25, this idea. But this is a, this is a totally different idea. And I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying, it's a commitment and I can't really see the end of it. I can, I can, I know how the novel is kind of going to end. And I can see sort of the stop streets on the way to the ending, which are the various chapters and so to speak. But unlike with the short story, I can't say, okay, I'll be finished within a month or two. It's not working out with the novel. I'm a really quick writer, but with this novel, I'm actually becoming, or I am really a slow writer. I'm feeling my way through it and enjoying the process of the commitment of it, the length of it, and, and seeing the words build up. I mean, and seeing that at the moment I have 10,000 words, and usually with a short story, if you have 10,000 words, you've, you've gone a little bit over the limit, perhaps. And you're going to have to start pruning. But here I can see at 10,000 words, although they will be edited and pruned in the final analysis, there's still so much to do. And there's an exploration as I'm writing. And what's also different is I'm having to do quite a lot of research for the novel, which I haven't really had to do for too many of my short stories. I had to do research on polio for a short story I wrote, The Iron Lung, which was about polio. But by and large, and I had to do research for um, uh, Jewish surnames that were imposed on Jews in, the, in Europe in the 19th, 18th centuries. Um, so this is very, very different. I'm having to incorporate more research than I've ever had to do and incorporate before. So a short answer, I enjoy writing everything that moves me. Um, as for a writing routine, I wish I did have more of a writing routine. I wish I could get to my desk at six in the morning or something like that, but I'm not a morning person. So I tend to write, as I did in the past when I had a full-time job, I'm now a freelancer. I tend to write over weekends still, even though I can move assignments around and perhaps work over a weekend and write on a Monday morning. But I think old habits die hard. I write at night very often after I finish my work for the day. If I'm not working into the night because as a freelancer, I've discovered that you do sometimes work into the late hours of the night. Not on your own stuff, but on, on fee-bearing things. So writing at night, writing over weekends. Um, I don't think I'll ever become a morning person, but it sounds like it would be great to be able to get up early and put in your two hours of creativity, which really sets you on a bit of a high to do the rest of the work for the day. But I, I like writing at, at night. I like the, the glow of the lamps on the desk and the quietness, the dark outside phone isn't ringing or WhatsApp or texts aren't going and I feel very comfortable writing at night so I think I would probably continue with this routine so long as I have to earn a living. Um, if I won the lotto would I write more in the day? I think I would because there have been at times when I haven't been working so hard when I have written in the day and the story has just come to me and there I have been on a Thursday morning and evening and afternoon doing my story um, but I think a routine does help. And I think that if you tell yourself you will be writing on Monday, Wednesday and Thursday nights, let's say, your brain and your whole psyche gets into the rhythm of routine. 
and you don't have to let's say wait for inspiration the inspiration is there you're automatically into that I do have a routine of sometimes playing music when I write but it has to be very gentle very instrumental very non-disruptive kind of music I can't write to songs because then I'm listening to the songs and I can't write even to music that's very um, full of rhythms and ups and downs it's some jazz I can write to, some very soft, gentle jazz that I've discovered, new age instrumental music, that it, it can't be too much. I don't think I could write to, let's say, a Beethoven or something, with all those crashing boom-bangs up and down and all that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my routine for now. Well, I'm going to tell you something that might make you feel a little bit better about not being a morning person because I'm also not a morning person. So I'm always looking for evidence that this is a totally fine way to be. And apparently it's actually your neurobiology. Some people are morning larks and others are night owls. And so forcing yourself to try and adapt to being a morning person is actually very bad for your brain health and for your sleep. And so I give you permission to always be a night owl for the rest of your life now. <laughs> Thank you. And the other thing that I thought whilst you were speaking was um, something that I um, heard that E.L. Doctoro said, which he said, writing is like driving at night in the fog. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. And that mm. is really a lot of what writing feels like, especially novel writing, where, as you say, it's really hard to see the ending when you're in, when you're in it, unless you're one of those people who can plot a whole novel. Um but it is a trust process of that you will get there in the end. So <laughs> it's really nice that you're allowing yourself that, that room to trust the process. Well, thank you. So you yeah. published um, with Mojaji Books, which is a feminist publisher that publishes only Southern African women's writing. Tell me about why you chose that publishing house. Um, I chose The Thin Line was the first book that Mojaji published. Um, that was my debut collection of short fiction. She had started up her feminist house in 2008, 2007, and um, I heard about it, and I sent my manuscript to her, and then she accepted it, and then it was eventually published in 2010. Um, I chose her because she was, she was willing to take chance, first of all, on short story collections, and short story collections are, have been very few and far between in this country. In the last three, four, five years, there's been an explosion of anthologies and collections written by, by writers and published by so many different other publishing houses. But at the same time, they, there's, there's publishing house, traditional publishing houses take more of a chance on writers who publish novels. If you come along with just a collection and you haven't got this body of work or this body of, let's call it, I don't know, evidence, let's, let's call it a body of work beforehand, um, they're a little bit reluctant to take a chance on you because they want to know that you have a bit of a name, um, which is also understandable. But Colleen was willing to accept poetry manuscripts, which also don't sell in this country and are a bit of a leap of faith in the dark. And she was willing to accept the short story collections. Um, she's always loved short stories as well, as, a, as have I. Um, I had sent my collection to a couple of other publishers. And I'd had a dispiriting response from them. One of them said that they were very sexual. And, I mean, I don't think my stories are sexual, but they do discuss sex. And they do discuss sex because sex is part of our lives. And for me, I can't take sex out of stories. And some of the stories are about relationships. So for me, sex is going to be part of that, um, if sex is part of that relationship. 
Um, so that was a bit of a, whoo, okay. Um, and then again, I hadn't published a novel or anything like that, although I'd published poetry and had won awards and all that kind of stuff. So I um, also like the fact that Colleen was open and innovative. Colleen Higgs, sorry, is the the publisher of um, of Majaji books. So I, yeah, I took a she took a leap of faith, and it was great. It was a wonderful experience, and she's a wonderful publisher to work with um, because she's she's so open and she's she's so willing to publish so many different things that more mainstream publishers wouldn't publish, perhaps. And her enthusiasm for poetry and the short story is wonderful. She, also, she of course, also publishes memoirs and novels. And, and also her eye for what what is good is really acute. Several of, I mean, more than several of her manuscripts of the books she's published have won awards, have then gone on to be published in overseas countries. So she's... I feel safe in her arms, so to speak, as a publisher. And you recently edited an anthology for Majaji called Fool's Gold, which included selected short stories that had been published by Majaji over the years. Tell me a little bit about that collection and about the editing process. Okay. Well, Colleen came to me and asked if I'd like to, to edit the collection, and I jumped at the chance. Every year, or mostly every year, I get the Best American Short Story series, which is which collects 20 short stories of the best short stories published um, throughout the previous year. They're always selected by a guest editor. So, I mean, out of all the hundreds of short stories, this guest editor will hone in on the 20 that he or she likes. Um, and I relig- as I say, I religiously read the series. I also read the travel writing series in the same in the same stable, and also um, the essays. So I jumped at the chance to do the same thing in South Africa. And it was also a chance to to look back at Majaji since she first started publishing short story collections from the first two, which were Mine, A Thin Line, and then Meg van der Meer. She wrote, um, oh goodness, the name has just escaped me. Um, the, this is a place I call home. That was her collection. Our collections came out at the same time in 2010. So it was a chance to look back and in some cases to read the collections afresh. Um, and I like the idea of presenting this. In fact, what I'd love to do is to, to have the best short stories of the year, the best South African short stories of the year series. And maybe one day we will get to that because, as I say, so many new collections are being published. The process itself was that I read all the short stories. Um, I think there were, I can't remember offhand, 10 or 12 volumes. And I selected two or three of my favourites. And then I thought about them some more, and then I whittled them all down to one each of my favourites. And then I told, uh, emailed Colleen, I told her what I liked, um, and we went, she accepted my choices. And then we... We collected the volume and it went into into layout and editing and all of that. Um, but it, it was a it was wonderful reading those short stories. They they're all so very varied, all of the collections. From oh, from an eighteenth century from oh, I, I won't go into all all what all the different stories are about, um, because that, that would be a bit too much. But there's such a voice 
so many voices in South Africa and these collections really collect so many diverse voices, so many diverse experiences. And it was a wonderful experience just going through the stories and, and seeing it all come together. Yeah, and I hope there will be more, whether from Majaji Best Volumes in the Future or whether a publisher jumps on this and says, OK, let's look at the best, I don't know, the best short stories published in the last 20 years or since democracy or whatever the case might be. Because it's so nice to give people a chance to revisit those short stories. And I also think anthologies give people a chance to discover new writers. Because you might not want to spend 200 or 300 grand on a new on a collection by a writer you don't know. But if you spend that same amount on an anthology, you discover writers that you like. And then you're more confident about going to look them up and seeing if they've got collections. And, and then you go and read them. So anthologies are a wonderful exploration for people to read short stories um, or poetry or essays or, or so on. You've touched on such an important thing, which I hope um, listeners are, are hearing the same way that I am, is that so much about writing and about publishing and getting published is obviously about the effort and time and quality of your writing, but it's also about the preferences of people in the industry at that time, about the ability of publishers to take on new projects that might be financial risk. And so the lesson, I think, from what you're saying is really that if you love writing, keep writing what you love, and eventually there will be a space, or you may have to make that space yourself to get the type of writing that you would like to read out there in the world. Um, so as a reader and a writer, my last few questions to you might be tough, but the, the one is, do you have a book that has inspired your feminism that you could recommend to our listeners? There is one, there, well, there are a few books. Um, what first inspired my feminism, I mean, I'd been aware of it before and knew about feminism, was reading The, Woman, the Women's Room by Marilyn French, which, I mean, it was a long, long time ago. I was 16 when I read it, but it fired me up. I, suddenly I knew all about the inequalities that women have faced, even though it was set, I think, in the 60s or perhaps the 70s, and it was... American woman, American woman of a certain class, educated, so to speak. But it still made me aware of how women had been sublimated in society. But I also went on to read the famous feminist Gloria Steinem's book, um, Outrageous Acts and Everyday Rebellions, which is a collection of her journalism and her essays from, I think it's from the 1960s right up until the 80s. And it was, she wrote about everything under the sun, from being a playboy bunny to issues around feminism. And in it was the most wonderful, iconic essay, um, If Men Could Menstruate. And this essay is witty and funny and deeply, deeply profound and intelligent because through the subject of if men could menstruate and, and what would happen in the world if men could menstruate, I urge people to go out and try and find this essay if it's online or in a collection which is still in print. Um, she shows, she, she, brings, she illuminates the inequalities that women do face still in society, even now, I mean, even though the book was written and, or published many, many years ago, in a, in a funny, enlightening, wonderful way. So that's, that's a book I would press on to people. I haven't reread it in, in years and years and years, but I would like to, I thought, on Kindle recently as a special, and so it's an opportunity to get it in digital format, which I prefer reading in these days. There have been lots, 
but, but that's the main one that really still stands out over all these years. Do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by? Um, I don't really have a quote. I've, I think one quote that does inspire me is Walt Disney's quote. Um, if you can dream it, you can do it. I firmly, firmly, firmly believe that. We don't always have the confidence to believe in what we want, but I have found in my life that if I believe in something really hard and really want it, it does come about. And however it comes about is, is, is the way you bring it about, but whatever you dream, whatever you, your dreams are, you can live those and it's never too late to live those. Whether it's finding a relationship at the age of 40, which was for me like a dream, like a dream come true, publishing, uh, marrying, whatever, the, buying a house, whatever your dream is, live it, try and live it. Um, a feminist quote that comes to mind is Simone de Beauvoir's one, one is not born a woman, one becomes one. And for me, that always reminds me that you can choose your reality, choose the way you can create yourself. And she, of course, was referring to the time, to, to the fact that women are so often moulded by society's expectations. And so they become part of this, this submissive paradigm, so to speak, or not. You know, it, it's a reminder that you can become part of that or that you can create your own reality. So both of these quotes are always up in my upper mind in my mind. Um, yeah, there are other quotes, but yeah, those two are the, the highlights. And what would be your advice for other feminists on their journeys? Be confident and pursue what you want to pursue. Don't, don't ever let society or friends tell you what you should or, or shouldn't do. And that's very, very hard when you're young. Um, I mean, part of the reason I didn't pursue all my gay nigglings was I was discussing it with a friend when I was 21. And she said, well, you know, it's much easier to be straight. So if you think you're going that way, be, you know, go that way. And we are very swayed when we're young. But try not to be. Try to, to look inside you. Try to really feel what you're feeling and, and what you're thinking about things and pursue that. Um, be confident and, and follow your own path, whatever that path is. I mean, maybe you want to get married and you, you don't want to follow your own path. You want to be have babies and you want to let's say you have a diplomat husband and you're just quite happy to to not have your own career and that's follow that if that's what you want be very happy don't think that you can't follow that that's as important as being an independent person earning your own money or doing whatever the case might be um, do what really feels true for you do what feels resonant and, and try and ignore what society is telling you to do or to be that would be my my advice, I think. Be, be informed. Um, read. Read about read about all sorts of things. Read about women all over the world. Read about other cultures. Be informed as to what you can do. Um, don't don't ever accept somebody saying you can't be an astronaut because you're a woman. Or there hasn't there hasn't been a woman president yet in South Africa, let's say, so you can't be a, a president. Don't just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's going to it's not going to happen i think those are really nice pieces of advice and thank you so much aria for coming on the podcast today to talk with me and for your writing and best of luck with the next collection thank you thank you so much jen that was lovely
Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.